January 2004, New York City. New York public radio broadcaster David Garland turned to his guest, 79-year-old cartoonist Gene Deitch. Garland introduced his show, Spinning on the Air. Today was a special interview. Deitch was friends with many renowned musicians. Though he came on the show to promote his book of cartoons, he brought with him some rare records to play. Deitch recorded the tapes in his kitchen in the 1950s. They were songs the world had never heard before, until now. Garland pressed play, and a soft melody echoed into the microphone. He closed his eyes and breathed deeply, inhaling every note. We go walking in the dark. No band accompanied the singer. The track featured only her voice and an acoustic guitar, but her sound was startlingly contemporary. Connie Converse recorded the arrangements in 1954, 50 years earlier, but her music was now traveling through time. A wistful smile played across Deitch's lips. Connie infused her melancholic lyrics with a wit that made both men laugh. The folk song echoed through the airwaves. At the time, few people tuning in realized they were hearing a ghost. Thirty years ago, the musician who sang about loneliness with such a haunting voice disappeared without a trace. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on Elizabeth Connie Converse. In 1974, the folk singer-songwriter stepped into her VW Beetle and seemingly drove off the face of the earth. Thirty years later, the world rediscovered her music, reigniting a search for the missing artist. This time, we'll examine Connie's early life and relationship to her strict but loving family. Then, we'll discuss her move to New York City, where she had a brush with fame performing on The Morning Show with Walter Cronkite, but ultimately struggled to find success. Next time, we'll investigate Connie's disappearance. We'll look at her possible state of mind in 1974 and consider what factors may have motivated her to walk away from her life. Then, we'll try to determine where the enigmatic musician might be today. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem 
of a detour. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Born on August 3, 1924, in Laconia, New Hampshire, Elizabeth Eaton Converse grew up in Concord, Massachusetts, with her two brothers, Paul, who was three years older, and Philip, who was five years younger. For some time, her father worked as a Baptist minister, but he left the church to head the local chapter of the Anti-Saloon League, an organization that campaigned for the prohibition of alcohol. As devout practitioners, Elizabeth's parents held their children to high standards. They forbade their kids from drinking, playing cards, and even from dancing. Though undeniably strict, the Converses fostered an artistic sensibility in their children. Many evenings, they would take a Shakespeare play and divide the parts amongst the five family members. They'd perform the play aloud for each other in the living room, sometimes in front of a lavish backdrop of Sherwood Forest, painted by Elizabeth. Elizabeth was especially close to her younger brother, Philip. Philip later described his sister as a polymath, meaning she had a wide range of knowledge and skills. He also credited his older sister for what he called his true upbringing. In the mid-40s, Elizabeth received several academic scholarships to Mount Holyoke College in South Hadley, Massachusetts. Her parents beamed with pride when they learned their golden girl would attend her mother and grandmother's alma mater. But Elizabeth's tight-laced, studious nature soon came to an end in spectacular fashion. Two years into her bachelor's degree, without any explanation, she dropped out of Mount Holyoke. Shortly after, she moved to New York City. Her parents were heartbroken. They considered New York City the epicenter of hedonism and suspected their daughter had moved to run away from them. According to Philip, they were probably partially right. Stifled by their religious household, Elizabeth dreamed of a freer bohemian lifestyle. Elizabeth found a small apartment in Greenwich Village and an editorial job at the Institute of Pacific Studies, or IPR, and she started writing. In addition to keeping diaries and composing poems, Elizabeth Converse wrote essays for work. In fact, her first piece ever about U.S. relations in the Pacific was published in the Far Eastern Survey, the IPR's journal. This was an exciting opportunity, but unfortunately, Elizabeth's day job didn't last for very long. The IPR had ties to an American government official named Alger Hiss. At the time, Hiss was accused of secretly spying for the Soviet Union. When this information came to light, the United States Judiciary Committee determined that the IPR had been infiltrated by communists. Whether or not this was true, the IPR office in New York promptly shut down, and Elizabeth was out of work. 
Luckily, not long after the IPR dissolved, Elizabeth secured a secretarial position at a printing company. When she did, she planted her roots more firmly in New York. She started building a support system for herself by meeting new people and making friends. She found what some might call a chosen family. These friends called her Connie, which was a simple play on her surname. Though the nickname might have seemed inconsequential at the time, it marked a turning point for Elizabeth. Connie Converse would be something more than the minister's daughter. Connie continued to write poems and essays. She also took to drawing illustrations. But she found her true passion was songwriting. She taught herself to play the guitar and spent much of her free time putting music to her poetry. She sang about larger-than-life characters in extraordinary circumstances, broken hearts, and wistful nostalgia. Even her most upbeat songs sounded melancholic, sung through the soft lilt of her voice. She told her friends that the melodies came to her spontaneously. She'd hum notes and phrases for a few days before realizing she'd accidentally created a new song. Connie mostly performed her music alone in her apartment, capturing the songs on a tape recorder. Eventually, she started mailing these tapes to her brother Philip, who now lived in the Midwest. The songs took him by surprise. Before pressing play, he didn't think his sister had any interest in music. She'd tried her hand at the violin in middle school, but gave it up. But Philip and his wife Jean were delighted to become members of Connie's highly exclusive Song of the Month Club. His sister was really good, perhaps even talented enough to make a real name for herself in the music industry. But more importantly, she was happy. Connie finally felt as if she was living the life she wanted. Greenwich Village in the 50s was a hotbed of art and music. Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald, and Kay Starr frequented the neighborhood stages and bars. Connie hoped that maybe one day she could join their ranks. As she did, she reveled in New York City's nightlife, drinking, smoking, and staying up to watch the sunrise. She embraced the exact lifestyle her parents feared, and this rebellious behavior put a strain on their relationship. Though they stayed in touch, her parents never approved of Connie's musical ambitions. According to some sources, her father died without ever hearing his only daughter sing, but this likely had something to do with Connie's reticence. Very few people actually heard her sing live. Though she sent her demo tapes to record labels and producers around the city, she steered clear of playing concerts for strangers. She opted instead for small, intimate gatherings made up of close friends. And her friends loved her living room sets. Some were musicians themselves and asked to play covers of Connie's songs, including established folk singer Susan Reed. Though she was sociable, Connie kept her personal life private, even with those closest to her. She was never involved in a romantic relationship, at least not that anyone close to her knew about. If someone asked her a question about herself, she'd only respond with a simple yes or no. But it seems that Connie's friends weren't bothered by her mystique. If anything, they were enchanted by her creative spark. 
They helped her make connections in the music industry, including introducing her to a man who was known to put fledgling musicians on the map, Gene Deitch. Deitch was a cartoonist by trade. He drew cover art for the jazz magazine The Record Changer. But he made a hobby of recording songs for up-and-coming artists, the most famous being folk singer Pete Seeger. So Connie was thrilled when Deitch invited her to play for him. And naturally, she accepted. In 1954, Connie traveled to Deitch's home in Hastings-on-Hudson, about 20 miles north of Manhattan. At first sight, Connie's appearance surprised Deitch. She wasn't what he expected from a chain-smoking, hard-drinking West Village singer. With her modest dress and thick-framed glasses, she looked more like a nun than a musician. But as soon as she opened her mouth to sing, Deitch found himself riveted. Her appearance didn't need to command a room. Her voice did the work for her. Her music was raw and hauntingly personal. Deitch recorded song after song in his kitchen, convinced that she had the makings of a star. And in a way, he was right. But little did he know that Connie might not ever see her own success. Coming up, Connie performs on national television. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. They say there's someone for everyone, a soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with. Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the Parcast Limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, join me for a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the Parcast network. Discover the extreme beliefs of cult leaders Tony and Susan Alamo, enter Fred and Rose West's real-life house of horrors, and experience the madness and motives of the San Francisco witch killers. Fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. In 1954, a friend introduced Elizabeth Connie Converse to Jean Deitch, a successful illustrator who enjoyed helping burgeoning musicians with their careers. They met in Deitch's kitchen to record some of her songs, with only her acoustic guitar as accompaniment, Connie put on a concert. She sang plaintive, lyrical songs about breakups, femininity, promiscuity, and vices, all with a sharp wit. To Deitch, it sounded like her songs came from a place of deep yearning, untapped potential, and an unassuming sadness. He suspected Connie was singing from personal experience. When they finally finished recording, Connie promised to return to sing some more. Deitch told her that through his connections in TV, he might be able to boost her profile. 
He said he liked her sound so much that he wanted to bring her music to a wider audience. And as it turned out, it wasn't an empty promise. After sending Connie's tapes to CBS, Deitch secured her an interview with the most trusted man in America at the time, Walter Cronkite. Before the end of 1954, Connie made her first ever public performance on CBS This Morning. According to those closest to her, Connie made a terrific musical guest. Unfortunately, the show was shot live and no recording of it has survived, so we'll have to take their word for it. With her music now in the public eye, Connie's friends and family felt it was only a matter of time before a record label or producer would see it and her career would take off. So she waited. And waited. After a while, Connie had to assume that no one in the music industry watched her performance. Or worse, they saw it and weren't impressed. Heartbroken, Connie continued to send her homemade demo tapes to record labels and agencies, hoping someone would bite. This continued for about two years. She never heard back from any of them. In the face of constant rejection, Connie leaned on her brother Philip for reassurance. In 1956, she recorded an album entitled Musics, Volume 1 and 2, and mailed it to him along with a note which read... These reels are strewn with minor mishaps. On the other hand, they're not so bad. With love and modest pride, Elizabeth Converse. As the years ticked by, Connie's resolve faded. She started to experience periods of deep sadness and lethargy, which she referred to as her blue funk. Four more stagnant years passed, and a 37-year-old Connie finally decided she'd had enough of the grind. After 17 years, she left New York City with all of its empty promises behind. And she stopped playing music. After New York, Connie moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan to be closer to Philip, who now worked at the University of Michigan. She began a radically different chapter in her life. Philip pulled strings to get Connie a secretarial position at the university's Journal of Conflict Resolution. In time, she became the editor. Connie still wrote the occasional poem, but as far as we know, she never picked up her guitar again. As the years wore on, Connie's friends and family watched her mental health decline. The ever-present melancholy of her music seemed to fester inside her without a release. She withdrew from her old friends, ignoring their letters and turning to old vices for solace. Apart from chain-smoking cigarettes between swigs of liquor, not much else is known about Connie's years in Michigan. Until... Around 1971, a group of Connie's Ann Arbor friends decided a change of scenery might lift her spirits. They pooled money together and paid for Connie to take a solo adventure to England. Connie accepted her friend's gift. She'd never been to Europe before, so she hopped on a plane to see if she could regain her sense of self. Of course, it wasn't easy. Connie spent plenty of time in her London hotel room, overcome with depression. And yet, 
She enjoyed her experience all the same. She later described it as the most unproductive fun she ever had. A few months later, Connie's mother planned a vacation to Alaska to try and lift her daughter's spirits. But the prospect of spending so much alone time with her mother horrified Connie. The outing was anything but an escape. She couldn't drink or smoke. As she was dropped off at the airport, she apparently took a drag off her cigarette and said, I want to go to Alaska like I want to go to the basement. Needless to say, this trip did nothing to help Connie's blue funk, and her loved ones continued to worry. But after returning, what she referred to as her personal incapabilities still weighed heavily on her spirit. She continued on her downward spiral, which soon became punctuated by two major upending life events. First, in 1972, her employer, the Journal of Conflict Resolution, relocated from the University of Michigan to Yale, leaving 48-year-old Connie out of a job. Then, Connie's doctor informed her she needed a hysterectomy. Due to limited sources, it's unclear why her doctor prescribed the procedure, but regardless, it came as a devastating shock. Though reportedly single for most, if not all, of her life, she was always fond of children. Some have speculated she held on to hope of having kids of her own one day. That said, whether or not the procedure carried this kind of emotional weight was almost beside the point. She was being told that she needed her uterus surgically removed, and the prospect terrified her. Surrounded by bad news, stress, and an inescapable, oppressive sadness, Connie Converse decided to do what many people wish for in their most trying times. She chose to disappear. Connie wrote vague letters to Philip and friends about how she wanted to start over. She mentioned maybe returning one day. Philip's letter was the most detailed. It included instructions to pay her health insurance bill for the next several months. Shortly after her 50th birthday in August 1974, with her farewell messages stamped and in the mail, Connie packed up her possessions, stepped into her VW Beetle, and drove away. No one has seen or heard from her since. Years went by. Her loved ones held on to the hope that one day she'd return, but she didn't. Those that tried to find her couldn't. So for decades, Connie Converse's legacy was defined by a loose end. She'd never made it big. She never even sold a record. Meanwhile, Gene Deitch gave up his hobby of recording music. The former magazine cover artist became a successful animator, drawing cartoons like Popeye and Tom and Jerry. Then in 2004, David Garland invited Deitch on his radio show, Spinning on the Air, at New York's WNYC Studios. Garland knew about Deitch's influence in the 1950s music scene and wanted to interview the 79-year-old artist. Deitch agreed. 
He flew to New York, bringing with him a handful of recordings he'd made in his kitchen all those years ago. They were one-of-a-kind tracks, never heard by the public before. Alongside established musicians like Pete Seeger, Deitch played a song by an unknown artist named Connie Converse. It was a ballad called One by One. It was Connie's second time on a national stage. But this time was different. This time, somebody was listening. Coming up, the first album by Connie Converse debuts in America. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now back to the story. Connie Converse disappeared in August 1974. For 30 years, her short-lived musical career languished in obscurity. Then, in 2004, her friend Jean Deitch played a recording of one of her songs on a New York radio station. Two sound engineers, Dan DeZula and David Herman, happened to be tuning in to the WNYC broadcast. They immediately fell in love with Connie's music, so they began researching more about her life, and then they became fascinated with her tragic story. They couldn't get it out of their heads. So, DeZula and Herman approached Jean Deitch and Connie's family with an idea. They wanted to compile and release Connie's old recordings to a 21st century audience. It took some convincing, but Deitch agreed to hand over his tapes. DeZula and Herman then used their talents to remaster the 50-year-old recordings. They even formed their own record label called Law Durette. Once the music was finished, they completed all the appropriate paperwork and launched a social media marketing campaign. They plastered Connie's story all over the internet, her tragic life, her conflicted relationship with her parents, and, of course, her mysterious disappearance. In 2009, five years after Garland's broadcast and 35 years after Connie's disappearance, Law Durette commercially released Connie Converse's music for the first time ever. It was a collection of 18 songs, all recorded in Gene Deitch's kitchen. They named the album after one of its tracks, How sad, how lovely. And it became something of a hit record, an indie darling, especially in Brooklyn, New York. Music critics praised its strikingly contemporary sound, calling Connie Converse an artist ahead of her time. After the album's release, 
David Garland made an hour-long special episode of Spinning on the Air, detailing Connie's life. The broadcast was punctuated by samples of her songs and included some of Connie's poems, read by actress Amber Benson of Buffy the Vampire Slayer fame. Audiences quickly became attached to the music. They speculated about why she'd had so much trouble finding success in her day. In the 50s, at a time when rock and roll artists like Elvis Presley ruled the charts, Connie was a single woman with an acoustic guitar and no band. She wrote and performed all of her songs herself. Of course, her music was contemporary with other artists of the 1950s American folk music revival. However, her particular style wouldn't become popular until 1961, one year after she left New York, the year when audiences flocked to concerts of Greenwich Village's hot new musician, Bob Dylan. So what made Dylan different from Connie? Frankly, it probably had something to do with their genders. Connie sang about material that was undeniably taboo for the 50s. Feminism, toxic marriages, one-night stands. Record labels likely didn't want to risk backing someone who could be perceived as radical unless that artist identified as male. In the mid-20th century, Nina Simone publicly joined the civil rights movement. Her 1964 song, Mississippi Goddamn, was banned in the South, partly for its frank discussion of race and racism in America. Which is to say, many record labels considered activism bad for business. It probably also didn't help Connie that she wasn't considered conventionally beautiful. But in Brooklyn, in the early 2000s and today, none of that really matters. Yes, sexism is still prevalent in the music industry. But there's less gatekeeping. Artists that don't have record deals still have opportunities to make careers for themselves. If Connie had lived in the 2010s, maybe she could have started her own SoundCloud page or YouTube channel and taken a more bootstraps approach to getting noticed. After all, her style fit neatly into the popular singer-songwriter genre, alongside giants like Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell. But arguably, she predates them all. After How Sad, How Lovely, some music experts have made the case that Connie Converse was America's first ever singer-songwriter, at least in how we define it today. And after 2009, Connie's success continued to soar. A missing woman who would be in her mid-80s suddenly became popular with millennials and college students. Other musicians started making tributes to her in song, on stage, and in film. In 2014, a graduate student crowdfunded a documentary about Connie. In 2015, a theater in Georgia produced a modern dance show inspired by Connie Converse entitled Empty Pockets. In 2016, a play featuring her music called A Star Has Burnt My Eye premiered off-Broadway at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. The show sold out entirely. And of course, there have been numerous musical tributes to her legacy. Songwriters have recorded songs and entire albums based on, covering, or inspired by Connie. The most recent came out in 2020. 
Connie Converse achieved what she always wanted, musical success. And yet, it's still a bittersweet ending to her career. When her music resurfaced, some believed that Connie might reveal herself. Perhaps she'd been in hiding somewhere, living under a different name. People wanted her to step forward into the public eye, enjoy the fruits of her labor, and take a climactic bow, like in the end of a Hollywood film. But it didn't happen. Connie never appeared. According to some accounts, the great sculptor Michelangelo left his statues unfinished. That way, anybody looking back on his body of work could never find fault with them. They'd always be masterpieces in progress. In a way, Connie achieved a similar feeling. Online sleuths, basement detectives, and many others have tried to crack her case. Their obsession comes from the sense that her story isn't quite complete. Her songs, so singular and unique, are rough around the edges, like a slab of marble an artist hasn't finished carving. And her mysterious disappearance only adds another unresolved layer. Maybe Connie started a new life. Maybe she chose to end her life. Or maybe she's 90-something, still alive and listening to this podcast, delighting in the wonder of it all. If you spend any amount of time reading about Connie Converse, one phrase repeats itself over and over again. Ahead of her time. In fact, we've used the phrase twice in this episode already. But the real tragedy of Connie Converse's life is that nobody can actually be ahead of their time. We must live within our given circumstance, even as we dream about a better world. Next time, we'll dig deeper into the enigmatic mind of Connie Converse, examine why she chose to leave, and what became of her once she did. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with part two of Connie Converse. For more information on Connie Converse, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Story of Connie Converse by Cord Jefferson, available on The All, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Molly Quinlan and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you. 
Hi, it's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the new ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits to married mafiosos, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.